Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? On Truth Over Tribe, we are not afraid to talk about difficult topics. We don't shy away from any of them. And today we're going to live up to that reputation. We're going to talk about sex, something that everyone is interested in, and yet many of us don't have anybody to talk to about it. So we walk around with all these questions and all these misconceptions. Well, today we're visiting with Julie Slattery, and we're talking all things sex, including purity culture, the differences between men and women and sexuality, cohabitation. What does the research say about the sex lives of people who are living together versus being married? And then at the end, we get into pornography. I think you're going to learn a lot from Julie. Let's dive in. Julie Slattery, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I just finished your latest book, I think, God, Sex, and Your Marriage. But you've written a lot of books, haven't you? Yeah, I guess when you live long enough, you've got time to write a few (laughs) things. So yeah, I've written a few. (laughs) And explain a little bit about what you do. Introduce yourself to us. You are the president of an organization called Authentic Intimacy. Is that right? You got it. Yeah, that's correct. So what we do at Authentic Intimacy is really help people navigate issues of sexuality and faith, any sexual issue, you name it, but really tackling that from the perspective of where's God in the middle of that. It's a very challenging field to be in and very rewarding. I think people are really seeking truth on topics of sexuality, but that's what my day job is. And so how do you get into that field? Because I don't think you were probably growing up and, you know, what do you want to do, Julie? Well, I want to lead a center on faith and sexuality, right? So my guess is (laughs) that this came about because of your own personal story or something you were seeing in people's lives. How did you end up in this position? You're right, Keith. This isn't something I would have chosen as a fun thing to do. My background is I'm a clinical psychologist. And so for the first decade or so of my professional career was doing clinical work, meeting with clients, and then started to get more into kind of the marriage and family realm and women's issues realm and started doing more writing and speaking and teaching. And then around 2011, I just really felt a call from God to step into this topic of sexuality. Now, I had already addressed it in writing and speaking as it overlapped with marriage and family issues, but it was kind of one of those things I had to do. Like, oh no, if you write a book on marriage, I guess you got to talk about sex. 
And the more I would step out and speak on it, the more like feedback I would get that this is a real need. Particularly, I think within faith communities, there has been a real silence around sexual issues. And when we talk about them, we only talk about them in terms of right and wrong, but not what wholeness and healing look like and what it really looks like to get in the trenches with people who are dealing with real issues of confusion and brokenness and trauma. So God just really put it on my heart that this was an area that was alienating people in their relationship with him, whereas it should be something that brings us to him. It seems kind of a weird thing, like you said, that the church is silent, but the culture isn't, right? And so it's kind of like what C.S. Lewis said about demons, either people obsess over them or they ignore them. And I feel like that's a little bit when it comes to sexuality, that some people, that's all they seem to talk about, that your sex life is the most important thing about you and is the key to right? happiness and everything else. And then you have this pocket in the church that just won't ever really address it. Or if it does, it does it in such an uncomfortable way. You can tell that they don't want to be talking about it. Yeah. Why do we see this kind of polarity between obsession or ignoring it? Boy, there's probably 10 different answers to that. You know, everything from, you know, people have looked back at the Victorian age and kind of look at like the dualism of just philosophy that, you know, our bodies don't really matter. It's our spirit that matters. And so spiritual people don't talk about bodily things because God doesn't really care about that stuff. You know, so there's a lot of history to why we find ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves. But I think in terms of faith communities, and this would include families, I think we don't know how to talk about it. And so like I see in my work, there are an awful lot of people who are saying, okay, like, I want to be able to talk about this because it's a pressing issue for my kids or it's a pressing issue for my community or for my church. But nobody ever taught me how to talk about this in a way other than pointing to a Bible verse and saying, God says this is wrong, repent. And that's a lot of what my heart is, is just kind of giving people language even to begin bringing God into their sexuality. And even as I say that, some people are kind of like, what did she say? Like, why would God be in our sexuality? Because I think there's been such a disconnect for so many generations that we feel like God and sex need to be in separate categories. And so the culture is just saying, all right, we're walking away from God. We're really finding more purpose in identity and sexual expression. And then people who want a relationship with God are really conflicted about their sexuality because they feel like the two can't go together. Well, you're very comfortable talking about this. As you already described, you've been talking about sex for years, decades. And most people don't, though. So most people think, gosh, this is a private area of life. It's vulnerable. It's something you don't talk about in church or imply to company, maybe with a good friend. But most people aren't comfortable talking about it. And therefore, we get all these misconceptions, I think, or maybe even think of them as lies that people believe. And they don't get challenged because we don't enter into conversations on these topics. No, you're right. I just want to run by you some of these lies, these misconceptions, however you want to think about it, that people have about sex. And let's start with kind of an obvious one, and that is that sex is dirty. In your book, God, Sex, and Your Marriage, you talk about 
picturing Jesus in the room as a husband and wife have sexual intimacy together. And I'm sure that freaks a lot of people out because they think that this is, you know, maybe a dirty part of their life. And the church has kind of promoted that in a lot of ways, I think unintentionally, but, you know, the church has fostered that idea. So how should a Christian, whether they're single or married, how should we think about sex? Well, I think, first of all, realizing that God created this and people get really uncomfortable. And I would have too, probably a good 15 or 20 years ago, when we talk about, for example, when Psalm 139, David says, you have knit me in my mother's womb. You know, you created my inmost parts. You know everything about me. And we picture, oh, isn't that sweet? Like God knit together David's hands and his head and his legs, but we don't want to think, wow, God knit together his genitals or, you know, that God is the author of testosterone and estrogen and that he created the climax. Like we just think, no, that can't be possible. Yeah, you know, I heard one comedian who put it this way. He said, if you heard most religious people talk about sex, you would think God created the arms and the hands and the torso, but that Satan slapped on the genitals. And I think we feel that way, you know, partly because we have our own sexual shame and that can come from a lot of different places. But then we also see how vile sexuality can become. We're aware of things like rape and we're aware of what happens with pornography and extramarital affairs and just all the ways that we can engage in sex that make it feel dirty. And so we've got to go back to the beginning and say, okay, before sin ever entered the world, when we read the Bible, we see that God created a naked man and woman and that he joined them together in one flesh. And so there was sex and it literally says in the Bible, they were naked and unashamed. And ever since sin entered the world, now we are naked and ashamed. And so there's always going to be this battle of redeeming our sexuality and seeing it as something good that God created. And again, to mix it all up, we do have dirty sexual desires. We have wrong sexual desires. I think all of us at some level have those and struggle with those. We want things that we shouldn't want or can't have. We have memories or experiences that we wish weren't there related to sexuality. And so to hear that this is a good part of me, but then to have experienced well, this actually is the source of some of my deepest shame and greatest pain really is a disconnect for a lot of people. When you grow up inside the church and hear the message that sex is dangerous, it causes problems, it leads people down destructive paths, you should be careful what you watch, be careful what you listen to, what you take into your mind, because that will lead you astray in your faith. And then all of a sudden, a man or a woman, they get married after hearing years of that. And I'm sure they take all that into their marriage. And it shouldn't surprise us, I guess, that there's a lot of marriages that get a slow start to that part of their life just because they're taking all this negative baggage into the relationship. So how should churches, how should Christians or families talk about sex that kind of warns, like you said, of some of the real dangers, but also talks about it in a way that this is created by God and can be beautiful and God-honoring? Yeah, I think we start with not saying sex is dangerous, but saying sin is dangerous. Hmm, that's good. And that's true with anything. Like, you know, gossip and slander are hugely destructive. They can destroy families. They can destroy a church. But we don't say 
speaking is dangerous, <laughs> you know, as, or we would never speak. We'd be afraid <laughs> to ever say a word. We say, okay, words can be life-giving or they can bring death. And I think it has to be the same way in how we talk about our sexuality, that this is a great creation of God and gift of God. And it has deep spiritual significance and it's powerful. And because it's so powerful, we have to be aware of the way that sin, our sin nature can pervert it. So those are like nuances, but I think the conversation about sexuality has to be nuanced. For example, there are moms all the time who will be concerned about, all right, what is wrong with my child? Every time I take off their diaper, their hand goes to touch themselves. And they'll say, I try to discourage it. I try to just slap their hand away and say no. And it's like, okay, well, why are we so concerned that a one-year-old would touch their genital? Like, it feels good. One-year-olds do everything over and over again that feels good. And it's not sexual at that point, but in that mom's mind or that dad's mind, this somehow is perverted. This part of their body is bad or wrong. And so kids are learning from the time they're very little, not that this is a special part of your body or that it's a pleasurable part of your body. They're learning that this is a shameful part of your body. And so I think we have to be laying the groundwork at even very young ages. And for those of us who are older in church culture, we need to kind of back the bus up a lot and start not talking about just what's wrong with sex, but really have a solid understanding of why God created sex and why it's really a good thing to be redeemed. It's not something to be stamped out. You said that sex is a spiritual experience, I think, if I heard you right. And that yeah. could probably be a good segue into a second misconception. And I think in our culture, and a lot of Christians, again, think that sex is a purely physical act. You know, it's just a desire that someone has, like sleeping or eating or, you know, any other kind of physical urge. And so sex is nothing more than a physical transaction. But I'm pretty convinced we know that's not true somewhere deep inside of each one of us. There was a line out of a movie that's kind of old now, Vanilla Sky. And one of the characters says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really insightful because obviously sex is more than a physical act. So how would you respond to that misconception? What are people not seeing if they think of sex only in physical terms? Well, you know, I think we can look at all the evidence that that's just not true. If you're somebody who believes in God, you look at the Bible and the Bible very clearly says that's not true. And Paul, in writing a letter to the early church, actually used the analogy of food and he said, what you put in your body in terms of food really doesn't matter because it's going in one end, coming out the other end. It's not eternal. And then he says, but what you do with your body sexually does matter. And he starts talking about like, how can you who belong to God be one with a prostitute is a language he uses, that there's a spiritual oneness. There's something significant that happens with sex. And if you're not just going to look at the Bible, you look at science and you look at the brain chemistry of dopamine and oxytocin and other hormones and neurotransmitters that bond people together. It changes brain chemistry when you have a sexual response. And those who are looking at the research of sexual addiction and what happens in hookup culture, like they're saying, hey, this is true, whether you have a faith or not. 
you know, there's research that shows that, hey, the more sexual partners you have, the more you're going to struggle with things like having difficulty connecting and poor self-esteem and marriage difficulties. And so I just read an article the other day, again, from a completely secular source that was saying your best chance at a great sex life is to have the fewest sexual partners possible. And so the science is showing that. And I think it's even just common sense. Like you know, some people will use this example. If you go up and you punch somebody or slap someone, that's assault. Now, if you go up and you rape somebody, you know that the psychological and emotional impact of being sexually assaulted is much greater than being physically assaulted. And even our law reflects that, that there's more serious punishment for somebody who commits sexual crimes and sexual assault than somebody who just does any kind of other physical harm to someone. And so we see all these threads through our society. And I think, Keith, you're absolutely right that deep down inside, we know that sex is more than a physical thing, but the culture keeps trying to brainwash us with that lie, even though something within us knows is not true. Well, I think that law that you brought up is revealing because somebody could get beaten up very badly, be in the hospital, broken bones, maybe you know even concussions, things even worse perhaps. But we know that those bones can heal, but it takes a lot longer for someone who is sexually assaulted to heal emotionally, spiritually, psychologically from that assault, sexual assault. And so, yeah, we intuitively know that's a worse crime, even though we try to tell ourselves in other areas, no, this is just physical and there's nothing more to it than that. What about sex inside of marriage versus cohabitation? Because we know that marriage rates are declining. People are getting married later. There are more and more people who are living together. And one of the reasons they live together is because they're comfortable having sexual relations outside of marriage. And so why not? But also there's this idea that, you know, we're going to see if we're sexually compatible. So what is the research, what is your own practical ministry experience and clinical work tell you about couples who are living together, cohabitating versus marriage, how does that affect their sex life? There is a fair amount of sociological research on this. A guy named Brad Wilcox has done a lot of research and others have looked into the difference between cohabitation and marriage. A lot of what they find is that couples that cohabit, even if they end up getting married, have higher rates of things like domestic violence and infidelity and divorce long-term. And so saying that we're going to try this out because it gives us a better chance at happiness in marriage isn't proving to be true in the research. And then you know, our job is to kind of say, okay, well, why is that? At a face value level, we could say, well, that's not God's design. And a lot of people don't understand why it's not God's design. But Part of understanding it is that what's unique about marriage is that marriage is based on a promise that I'm not going anywhere, that I'm committed to this relationship. And the way God created marriage to be is what you might call a covenant. It's different from a contract. So a contract is saying, hey, as long as you're happy and I'm happy, as long as you do what you said you would do and I do what I said I do, like things are good. But as soon as one party becomes dissatisfied, then a contract can be dissolved. And unfortunately, this is the way that a lot of people view marriage, but it's really true with cohabitation. The reason you don't want to get married is because you don't want a long-term commitment. You're trying it out. 
And the trying it out of cohabitation creates a consumer mentality. So it creates also a performance basis of connection. So even sexually, like as long as you're meeting my sexual needs, we'll continue to cohabit. But as soon as our sex life falls off or we have too much conflict, we agree to go our separate ways. Whereas in marriage, marriage is starting with this fundamental understanding that, hey, we're in this together. Like you're going to bring your baggage in. I'm going to bring my baggage in. We're going to face conflict. We're going to have some disappointments. But the beauty of marriage is I have somebody who has promised to work it out with me instead of bailing. And so what the research is showing is that when you cohabit before you get married, you're actually sliding into commitment instead of deciding that you're committed. And couples, again, will bring in more that consumer mentality or that performance fear of, hey, I'm not going to show you who I really am because I'm afraid you're going to leave. So we have to perform for each other. And so that's some of what researchers are saying will lead to overall kind of less stability in a relationship that even begins with cohabitation rather than one that really from the get-go is saying, hey, we're going to hold off on living together. We're going to hold off on sexual expression until we actually make that covenant. It makes sense that the safety of that covenant, that commitment to one another, maybe allows you to learn to be more comfortable and to be more humble inside of your marriage that leads to a more fulfilled sex life and that performance, are they going to stay? Are they going to leave? All that puts that pressure on that relationship. And it kind of, I don't know, it's probably a harder on women than I think it would probably be on men, but. Yeah, it is. But there are a lot of men who feel a lot of performance demands around sex. So I think it's a kind of a leveling out today, but a lot of the research is saying that cohabitation is doing relationship by a guy's rules because he doesn't want to commit. Uh, now that's painting with broad strokes, so that's not true in every case. But ultimately, like a great marriage and a great sex life is built on vulnerability. And you can't be vulnerable if you're afraid that you're going to be rejected. And somebody asking you to move in with them is saying, hey, I want all these good things about you but I still want an escape hatch if I don't like you. And so it creates from the beginning this fear of rejection that is very hard to work through even if that couple ends up getting married. Well, that kind of launches a lot of questions in my mind. I think that one of the misconceptions about sex is that only married people need to think about it. Not, In other words, singles don't have sexuality or perhaps it gets said like, you know, singleness is bad and marriage is good, especially inside the church. Somehow there's that kind of perspective, or at least that's the perception. But single people are just as sexual beings as married people, right? So how should a single person think about their sexuality? Is it different than a married person? I truly don't know. Yeah. So their sexuality is the same. I, we're the same, whether we're single or married or divorced or widowed. You know, we still have longings. We still have sexual drive and desire, but it's an issue of how we steward our sexuality. So I think one of the most confusing things is that most people in today's culture only think of their sexuality in terms of what I might call genital sexuality, like having sex with somebody. But what we don't realize is that our sexuality is a whole lot more than that. It's the longing to be known by somebody. It's what causes us to move towards people, to take risks, to be known. It's our gender, that you show up 
in every space as a gendered person and as a sexual person. There's a guy that I've learned a lot from. He passed away about a year and a half ago. His name is Dr. Doug Rosenau. And he just did a beautiful job of talking about this. He talked about how we also have social sexuality. So our social sexuality is even, he would use the term like righteous flirting. Like it's healthy for men and women to be playful with each other. And it doesn't have to be these overtones of you're hitting on me or, you know, like the Billy Graham role, like there's this danger. It's just, there's a healthy dynamic of women that embody who God made them to be and men who embody who God made them to be. And that there's a beauty of manhood that women bring out. And there's a beauty of womanhood that only a man can bring out. And I think we've really lost that in our day and age because we're so afraid of everything being over-sexualized or there being a danger of men and women interacting. So I think it's looking at the fact that your sexual expression is not just what you do in a bedroom. It's how you carry yourself. It's how you understand your gendered self. It's how you steward your desires for closeness and intimacy and how you nurture relationships. So yes, there's a different stewardship if you're a married believer. Now you are focusing your sexuality. You're actually awakening your sexuality towards your spouse, which can be a battle in and of itself. But there's still a journey of stewarding your sexuality, not just shutting it down as a single person. I think some of this comes back to the idea that you need sex to be happy. Like a life without sex is an unfulfilled life. And that's part of why our culture obsesses over it and why people are willing to enter into cohabitation, you know, relationships where they're living together without that commitment that you said, or why you'll never be out of a job because people are always going to be wanting help pursuing and understanding their sex life, why so many books and conferences and seminars are all on this topic. But you said in your book, I think if I remember hearing it, or maybe I heard it on one of your podcasts, Java with Julie, I don't quite remember, but you talked about sex being a desire, but not a need. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So there's no research that says you'll die without sex or even that (laughs) your life will be qualitatively worse without sex. But what there is research that shows is that you need intimacy and that you can't thrive without intimacy. And so even as we look at our culture today where there is more sexual freedom than there really ever has been in modern history, we see happiness rates go down and loneliness go up and depression go up, and anxiety go up, and every other form of mental illness on the increase. Now, why is that? Because sexual expression is not the same thing as intimacy. And I really believe in our day and age, most people don't know how to separate the two. And so when they feel lonely, when they feel insecure, the main thing the world is offering them is, okay, well, go find sex or look at porn or you know, have this release that's gonna make you temporarily feel good. But all of those things that I just mentioned actually end up sabotaging the possibility for intimacy, like intimacy in relationship, intimacy with God. They sabotage your chances of getting married and having a fulfilled marriage. They sabotage healthy families where children learn healthy intimacy. And so we have a world who is saying, we're going to take the desire or longing of sex 
and tie it with your need for intimacy. And the two are actually very separate things. You can have an intimate relationship with a good friend. You can have an intimate relationship with a mother or father or son or daughter or sister or brother, like deep knowing, caring about each other. And when you read the Bible, intimacy is what is highlighted. It's not sex. And so I think we've got to write that perspective in our church communities, our family communities, and in our thinking to say, hey, great sex life and marriage is a wonderful thing and it's worthy of pursuit, but that's not what's going to bring you happiness. That's not what is going to bring you satisfaction ultimately in life. It's forging the path of intimacy and relationships. You were talking about closeness and, you know, is it vulnerability? Is it just that you have a honest friendship that you shared kind of real, personal, deeper things? I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about intimacy and trying to get a better picture of what that is, whether it's related to sex or not, just independent on its own. You have an intimate relationship when what is true? Yeah, I really think it's three things that are true. So first of all, it's safe enough to be vulnerable. So, you know, how many relationships do you have where you can say anything to that person? So the second piece of it is that you're accepted, that you're known and loved for who you are. So if you are vulnerable, that person is going to meet you with, hey, thank you so much for telling me. That actually makes me love you more, not makes me reject you. And then the third piece of it is some form of commitment that this person's going to be in your life. Usually intimacy can only happen over time because it takes time to feel safe with somebody. It takes time to know them. And it takes time to build that trust that, you know, this isn't a friend who's just going to be there for six months. You know, this is somebody who is in my life for the long haul. So I would say that those are three of the most important distinctions of what creates an intimate relationship. And you're saying that the Bible says we need intimacy. Yes. We need that kind of connection. We don't necessarily need the physical sexual act. I mean, Jesus didn't have sex. Paul. Right. Many people have gone in both the Bible, but just in our own contemporary lives, we have friends who've never had sex and they can be healthy people who have great lives. But it's that intimacy that we so desperately need. I'm curious, let's say you take a married couple and let's say they have a good marriage. I mean, maybe not the best ever, but sure not a bad marriage, a marriage they're pretty much pleased with. When they have sex, does that equal intimacy or could they be having sex that doesn't lead to intimacy and maybe even hinders intimacy? Keith, that's a great question. I think there are a lot of married couples who are sexually active, but not sexually intimate. And so- What's the difference? Well, sexual activity is what you're doing with your body. So it's the physical act of sex. But a lot of couples have never done the work of sharing the journey of their sexuality, of being vulnerable enough to be able to share how they struggle or what insecurities sex can represent for them or what it feels like to initiate sex with their spouse and then be turned down, what it feels like to feel like you're objectified by your spouse, like you only want me for my body. And so when you do this deeper work with couples, you find couples that have been married you know, 20 years and they would say they have a decent marriage. But once you begin describing the journey of what sexual intimacy is, they'll look at each other and be like, wow, we not only have never had that, we never thought that was even possible. And I also think it's really possible for couples who for one reason or another are not able to have intercourse 
but who actually have deeper sexual intimacy than a couple who can. Because when sexual activity breaks down for one reason or another, be it a physical reason or because of trauma in the past or because one person is battling a sexual addiction, it forces that couple to begin to talk about what sex means to them, the absence of sex means to them, what triggers it's bringing up. And so now they're actually on a journey of connecting soul to soul, not just body to body. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. It seems like what you're saying is that you can be married and therefore, in some sense, you know, God approves of having sex inside the context of that marriage, but you bring in a lot of the maybe non-Christian ways of thinking about sex. So in one sense, it's all legal and good and fine and go for it. In another sense, you're acting just like a person who maybe doesn't know Christ and who thinks of sex in a very physical only, or like you said, leads to objectification or doesn't lead to communication and vulnerability and intimacy. And I would guess that, I don't know if this is true, so maybe it's wrong, but I'm just guessing that guys are more prone to that. And it kind of leads me to another misconception that I think is out there in our society is that men and women, when it comes to sex, there's a sense in which we think we're the same. You know, like the sexual revolution has said, hey, women can hook up just like men can. And women want the same things that a man wants in all these areas, including in their sexuality. But is that true? I mean, where are men and women the same or at least have common ground? And where are they really different when it comes to their sexuality? They're the same in that there can be variance. So when I say that, one of the reasons, Keith, that people push back on generalities about men and women is because somebody will be like, well, I'm a woman, and the way you described it, actually, my sexual desire is more like a man's. So, for example, in about 70% of marriages, the man is the one with what we might call initiating desire. So he's thinking about sex more often. He wants to have sex more often. And the woman is the one with what we would call the receptive desire, where 
she isn't always thinking about sex. She has less testosterone in her body. But if the man like can really phrase it in the right way, she's like, all right, well, I could be into that. I wasn't thinking about it, but I could actually get into it and enjoy it. So when you talk about that generality, and that's been pretty stable over time, you have the 30% of women who that's not their experience. They're actually the one with a higher sex drive or the initiating desire. And they're like, well, that's not me. So why do you keep talking about it in these broad terms? And so there's a lot of overlap that I think when we say men are always like this and women are always like this, it makes the people who don't feel like they fit into that, like there's something wrong with them. But there are fundamental differences between men and women and how they approach sexuality and even how they're wired. So one of the main differences is that a man, even the way his brain is wired, is more able to compartmentalize his sexual desire. And so he's able to have a physical response, often with no emotional connection. Whereas with women, there's a much stronger tie to how she's feeling emotionally, whether she feels safe, whether there's closeness. Now that doesn't mean she can't respond to pornography or something like that. But even the pornography that is created for women often has some undertones of relationship and romance and things like that, that would get her pulled in. But when women struggle to enjoy sex, often it's because they get distracted or they don't feel safe or they don't have enough time to warm up. And so there are these physiological and brain differences that show us that we're wired differently. One author put it this way, and this is the title of their book, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. And they talk about how like waffles have little boxes in them and men are always in a box. So they're in the work box. They're in the box where they're literally thinking about nothing. They're in the fantasy sports box. And when they're in the sex box, that's all they're thinking about. But women are more like a plate of spaghetti with every noodle touches every other noodle. So a woman can be in the middle of trying to have sex with her husband. And all she can think about is what time is the orthodontist appointment tomorrow? And I think I just heard one of the kids crying. And so there's things like that that really play into how women approach sex differently than men and why it's so different. I'll give you another physiological difference, the impact of oxytocin, which is this bonding or cuddling hormone. And it's the same hormone that women get a lot of when they're pregnant and they give birth. And it's really so that that woman will stay bonded to a baby who wakes her up in the middle of the night. And it's biological. I mean, it's a good thing that God gave us to that. But women have a lot of oxytocin in their bodies. And when it's mixed with estrogen, it's particularly strong. So a woman will get a pretty strong dose of oxytocin if she's holding her husband's hand or cuddling with him, or even like going out for coffee and talking about deep things. But a man's oxytocin level only significantly boost right after orgasm. And so when a man will say to his wife, like sex makes me feel closer to you, there's actually some biological research underneath that, that it really does make him for a period of 24 to 48 hours, like feel more bonded to her. So there's some differences like that, that we can see biologically and that also tend to play out anecdotally. I love the description of men living in the box of the waffle and women are being like spaghetti. And of course, you've already said these are just norms or averages. Not everybody's wired the same way. But I think we've been learning that 
those boxes and waffles that men are placed in, they're, what they're doing is they're thinking about the Roman Empire when they're in that box. <laughs> have you seen all yeah. that stuff lately? I haven't. Women are asking men in their life, spouses or whatever, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And evidently, we've found that a lot of men think about the Roman Empire either daily or weekly. And so this is a thing that's been going around social media. And wow. All these people okay, are I'm out of questions. it. Thanks for making me wise to it. <laughs> you need to ask your husband how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. But anyway, and you described my wife can have just all the time. She's got all these thoughts and we bounce from one place to another in a conversation. And I'm like, well, you lost me back there. And she's off to another topic because she's got a lot on her mind, a lot on her plate. And they're all connected in her mind in a way that sometimes I have a hard time following. You mentioned pornography and that some women use pornography or are attracted to pornography, whatever the right way of saying it is. I know you wrote a book about the Fifty Shades of Grey. So Fifty Shades of Grey is a trilogy, I think, that came out a few years ago, and there are a lot of women reading it. What is it that attracts women to that book. Maybe you could describe the book just a little bit. So if those who aren't familiar with it can kind of understand. But my take on it is that it was kind of a mistreatment of a woman. And so I could never figure out, and I didn't read it, but I could never figure out why are women attracted to something where women are mistreated? I didn't get it. Help me. It was the fastest selling book in history. And this was about maybe 12 years ago when this was really a hot thing. First of all, it is pornography. It's written pornography. So even the pop culture called it mommy porn. So very descriptive sexual scenes. And I think in some ways, written pornography can be even more powerful than visual pornography because you have to create the scenes in your mind. And women are sexual. And particularly when there is a romantic storyline tied with sexuality and the anticipation of sex, we're designed to be aroused. And so when women are aroused sexually, when they have a sexual experience, they have a similar dynamic to men where there's a huge release of endorphins and dopamine, which is, I feel really good right now. And so women and men can get addicted to pornography almost as a drug. It becomes an escape. It becomes a way that your brain can find peace and pleasure for at least a short period of time. So that same dynamic happens with women, even though it may happen a little bit differently in terms of what they find arousing in general. So women and men can have that same dynamic. It just depends on what they're aroused by. But you ask the question, you know, how about this whole dynamic in the story, which is BDSM, which is bondage, dominance, sadism, and masochism. And that was a major theme in the Fifty Shades of Grey. And there's a lot of theories in terms of why women were so drawn to it. And I think some of the most pressing and probably promising theories in understanding that is, first of all, women really want men to be strong. And they want men to not be dominant, but they want men to, in a healthy way, take charge. And we live in a culture that has so like puffed up women in terms of female power and really, I think, denigrated male strength and masculinity. Like all male strength now is kind of being labeled as toxic masculinity. But there's a part of women that wants a man who can protect them and who wants a man who can take charge in a healthy way. And so I think Fifty Shades of Grey played off of that. It was like this guy who made millions of dollars and was super fit and 
had his own thoughts on everything. He was opinionated, but he also had this sweet romantic side and that's fantasy. You know, it was like creating this fantasy man. But I think also women want to be the savior. Like women want to make a difference in a man's life. And Fifty Shades of Grey, the storyline really is about sort of the love of this woman taming the bad boy, you know, like bringing him to a place of healing and salvation. And so I think it was really skillfully playing on some of those kind of undertones of what women really long for. So in Pulling Back the Shades, the book that I wrote, we actually looked at some research that shows here are the major elements that you should use if you want to write a great romance story. And it had a lot of those elements that I mentioned of, you know, the woman being the savior and this man being like very strong and rugged, but yet tender and loving. And so Fifty Shades of Grey really wove in a lot of those very skillfully. And so maybe that makes sense why it was such a bestseller. And like you said, the fastest selling book at one point is because it tapped into something that people want. And then like everything in our world, sin distorts. And so it distorted that in maybe a way that was a bit destructive. You talk about women saving men. And that leads me to another misconception I want to talk about. And that is that women are responsible for men's lust. And a lot of times this gets talked about in terms of purity culture which I know that people are probably familiar with this idea. There's a whole culture around it. It's not just one thing, but at least at a minimum, it was that women have to be very careful about how they dress or how they act or how they talk to men because men are these animals that are just have all these sexual desires and they can't help themselves. And if a man were to do something wrong toward a woman, I don't mean like assault, I just mean even initiate a sexual relationship where there shouldn't be one that that's really the woman's fault. She's responsible because she did something wrong. What's your history with purity culture? Because all this was happening probably as you were writing and practicing in your clinic or all that. Did you change on that topic? Just tell us your story of what you've learned about purity culture. I definitely have kind of lived through it. I grew up in the church. And if you would have found me at 22, 24 years old, like I would have been a champion of purity culture because, you know, that was sort of the mantra of what it was to be a good Christian. And so I have had to learn through my own marriage, but also through clinical practice and just being an observer of culture and going more deeply into scripture of understanding God's heart for all of this. And I think some of the things that you mentioned are really key. You mentioned women being blamed or feeling the responsibility to be the gatekeeper of sex. And there's all these undertone messages there with that that are not only destructive for women, I think they're also destructive for men. Like to tell young men that you have this lust that you can't control and that you have to be weary of women. I think even taking out of context, you know, passages like Proverbs 5 that talks about you know, the women who want to seduce you and things like that. When you take that out of context of the whole of scripture, it becomes a very fear-based interaction for both men and women. Instead of what is a much healthier perspective that, hey, sex is powerful. The drives that both a woman and man have for sex are powerful. The drive that a woman has to want to feel beautiful and to capture the attention of a man, that's powerful. But how would God call me as a woman or you as a young man to steward that powerful drive? 
and putting responsibility on both the man and woman or boy and girl for their own choices, not for somebody else's choices. And you're absolutely right that some of the fallout, there's so much fallout from purity culture, but some fallout has been really the underlying message that female sexuality is bad. There are an awful lot of women in their 30s right now who grew up in purity culture and really can't reconcile the goodness of their sexuality because all they ever heard was it was bad. And in some ways, men are also getting that message through purity culture, like my sexual drives and desires themselves are bad. And so I've got to just shut it all down. So there's a lot of fallout. I definitely have had to work through that. And it's something that I spend a lot of time with churches and Christian communities in really looking at the difference between what I might call a purity narrative and what a more holistic biblical narrative of sexuality should be. Let's deal with purity culture for another second here and think about the parents, mom and dad, who have a teenage daughter, a teenage son, and they're trying to figure out how do I help this 15-year-old, 16-year-old navigate the world? And you get one voice that says, boy, you want to really protect your kids from sex, so whatever you do, don't let them have sex because that'll hurt them. And, you know, there's truth in that. It can be exaggerated, but there is definitely truth there. So that parent is tempted to say, okay, you're going to wear a burqa to school, right? Because if you are completely clothed from head to toe, wherever you go, then you won't draw anyone's attention. And it's kind of a joke. You wear a burqa to school, but you get the point. That's their response. And sometimes they go to the Bible and they look up a verse like 1 Timothy 2 about being modest and say, look, women are supposed to be modest. Now, others have pushed back and said, well, yes, women are supposed to be modest in 1 Timothy 2, but that has to do more with riches and wealth than it does the outfit you wear. You know, my daughter's, you know, married and she's older now and we were able to navigate this. So it's not so much a personal question, but I do feel for the parents out there who are trying to figure this out. I don't want to tell my daughter that she has to be responsible for men's lust. Therefore, she needs to wear the burqa. On the other hand, I don't want to be so naive as to think that if she dresses a certain way, she's going to draw the attention and comments of boys and, you know, develop a certain kind of reputation. Is it fair? No, probably not. But is it reality? Probably so. So what would you say to those parents? How do they navigate that without giving that child that sense that you just said a lot of women have of sex is bad, female sexuality is bad? It just seems like a no-win situation. And you're right, Keith. Like, I think parents feel like they're on this ping pong between, you know, this legalism, purity culture, my kid's going to be afraid of sex versus, you know, let's just forget it all and, you know, wear whatever you want and look at whatever you want. And hey, let's just give up on it. And they don't know where a middle ground is or what a healthy perspective is, not just with modesty, but I think everything related to sexuality. So let's go back to something that we talked about earlier. Your sexuality is more than just what you do with your genitals. Your sexuality is becoming a man, becoming a woman, how you steward your drives and desires, and how you steward your body. And so I think the message of stewardship is a lot healthier. And modesty isn't necessarily at its root about dressing in a way that people see too much flesh. At its root, modesty is about, I want to draw attention to myself. Like you mentioned, even in Paul's letters, he was talking about, I want to draw attention to myself by wearing fancy jewelry or, you know, like being inappropriately dressed in that way. 
But you can also dress immodestly sexually by wanting to draw attention to your sexuality. And this can be true of guys too. Guys that will wear super tight shirts to show off their muscles or really skinny jeans or, you know, pants that are falling down. So it's really a question of what's appropriate for that venue. Is it right to wear beautiful jewelry and a beautiful dress on your wedding day? Yeah, the Bible even describes it as such. But that same apparel isn't appropriate when you go to church because you're saying, hey, look at me, look at me, I want the attention. And so I really think like teaching these deeper principles to both boys and girls of asking, what's the purpose of how I dress? What kind of attention do I want to draw to myself? What do I want people to see about me first? Is Those are good questions to ask rather than let's take a tape measure and see how short your skirt is. But it's really helping kids think through wisdom and stewardship issue, but never blaming a woman for something that happens based on a man's choice. Even if she did make an unwise decision in what she wore, or even if she did have something to drink or shouldn't have been at that party or shouldn't have gone to the guy's house, what happened to her was not her fault. And the man should be fully responsible and accountable for his decisions. And the law reflects that. And the way we interact with people have to reflect that. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of a teenage or college age girl going to their parents or to their pastor and talking about a sexual assault or a date rape. And the questions that were first asked were, what were you wearing? Did you have anything to drink? And why were you there? And how far did you go before you said no? And so those very questions are telling that girl that at the root level, this is your fault and you deserve what you got. And so those are the kinds of things that we really need to be thinking through and changing in terms of our approach to this. When we put all this emphasis on high school kids, college kids, whatever, 20-somethings, to not have sex outside of marriage, again, that is God's design and it is good. But what does is that when someone sins and has some sort of sexual intimacy outside of marriage, then they feel all this shame and guilt. Like God's best is now gone for me. I'm now always going to be living on plan B. Sometimes it's hard because sex is like fire. It can do a lot of really good things, but it can also destroy. And so we want to have that warning, be careful, but we don't want to shame and guilt and drive away people who have sinned because that's all of us. So one of the things you talk about is the difference between purity and sexual integrity. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I guess none of us are pure, right? Well, none of us are pure other than the purity that we have through Jesus Christ. You know, that is the gospel. And so even the word purity, the way it's used in a sexual context in our culture, really in some ways is something that goes against gospel thinking. Because if we're telling a kid, you can be pure by not having sex, but you're impure if you do have sex, we're really confusing the fact that all of us have sinned. All of us are impure. And we only become pure through the miracle of God putting on the purity of Jesus Christ over us. And so this is where a lot of people have gotten confused. It feels like there's two gospels. There's the gospel of everyday life, and then there's gospel of sexuality, which all has to do with our behavior. 
And so I think it's important to make that distinction. But I love this idea of integrity because purity is, in our thinking, it's an all or nothing thing, particularly related to sexuality. Like, did you save sex for marriage? Or have you looked at pornography in the last month? And we're only looking at behaviors. But what we actually see Jesus calling us to instead is he's calling us to this wholehearted surrender where we're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So it's not just our behavior. You know, I think a lot of sexual sin and sexual struggles are actually not rooted first and foremost in behavior. They're rooted in our beliefs and our identity. So if I grew up believing, man, I'm a sexual sinner, I've messed up, maybe I've been through sexual trauma that adds to it. My thinking is I can never be pure. No guy would ever really love me. If people knew who I was, they would always reject me. And so a young woman then believes that and she begins acting that out. She begins believing the only way I can get a guy is if I give him moral sex or I do what he wants because I don't believe I'm worthy of anything better. And that's why integrity is so key because it doesn't start with our behavior. It actually starts with what does it look like to surrender that shame to God? What would it look like for me to really believe God when he says that I will completely cleanse your sin when it's been confessed to me, that I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness? And so our lack of integrity isn't primarily what we do with our behavior. It's what we refuse to believe, the truths that we refuse to walk in. And integrity goes so much beyond behavior. It's how am I stewarding my sexuality and marriage? What am I doing with the wounds from my past? Is Jesus the healer or am I still burying those wounds from the past and refusing to bring them to God? And so it's a much more comprehensive approach to sexuality, but it also is a much more encouraging one because we're all called to be on this journey of integrity. It's never going to be an all or nothing thing. It's a continued journey where you just keep taking that next step. Okay, I just got one more, one more thing I want to talk to you about and kind of a misconception that people have. And I think it centers around pornography. And I think there's this idea that pornography isn't that big of a deal inside of a marriage or that it's victimless. Yes, you engaged in pornography, but everybody does is kind of the mantra. I'm not sure that's true, but that's the mantra out there. It's no big deal for you to do it because everybody's doing it. And everybody's got their phone in their pocket now. And so whether you're young or old, or you can be by yourself and access pornography, it's so easy in our world. So the statistics do show, if they're accurate, that there are a lot of, especially men, but also some women who do access pornography frequently. Pornhub is, I think, the largest website in the world. So what are some of the implications for pornography inside of a marriage? How is it affecting marriages today? Well, first of all, to say it's a victimless crime, I think the research shows that like over 75% of pornography likely involves somebody who is under duress, who is maybe a sex slave or is drugged. So you even have this term like ethically sourced pornography, but you can't say, all right, there's nothing wrong here. This is hurting people. But you ask the question, what is the impact in marriage? So the impact in marriage is essentially you're looking at somebody else or even fantasizing about someone else. And you're essentially saying to your spouse, you are not enough to arouse me. It's not enough for us to focus on each other. We have to bring a third party fantasy, like 
very fake thing into our sex life for us to even be able to have it be enjoyable. And Keith, the reason that this happens is because pornography plays off of the pleasure centers of the brain that we mentioned. Like it gets you these dopamine hits and adrenaline hits and another neurochemical that's super powerful called PEA that's associated with sexual novelty. And it tricks your brain out to only respond to that. And so the way pornography works is what got you excited with all those brain chemicals last month will no longer get you the same high. It will no longer bring arousal. And so you have to do something different. You have to do something that's a little more edgier, a little riskier. And so then you try to look at your spouse, who's a very normal person, and isn't airbrushed and isn't engaging in violent acts and things like that that you've been consuming. And your brain cannot respond sexually. So up to about 30% of young men actually have erectile dysfunction right now because of pornography, because they can't respond to a normal sexual relationship. And so you've got these married couples, maybe one spouse has been using pornography for a decade and their brain can't respond to their partners sexually. So what pornography does is it just keeps you on that treadmill. And ultimately, you're not having sex with your spouse. You're physically having sex with your spouse, but you're mentally and visually having sex with another person, which just really violates trust. It undermines vulnerability. It makes sex feel like something that is objectified. And it makes you even demand things from your spouse that are unloving. Violent acts or I need sex right now, instead of it being a true celebration of your love together, which is what God designed it to be. And then I guess the misconception out there is that if you get married, that pornography addiction or craving will go away, that somehow marriage is the solution to the problem of pornography. But you've already explained that clearly doesn't work because of the way your body's wired and the habits that you've built into it. So let's say somebody's in pornography. They're in pretty deep. They can't get out on their own. They need some help. Do you encourage them to read a book, to go to a seminar, to get a counselor? Like just what's the next step if somebody's listening and feels like, I want to get out of this. Maybe I'm single. Maybe I'm married. Man, woman, doesn't matter. I just need help getting out of this. What do they do? Really good question. I think, first of all, you got to confess it to somebody and not just minimize it, but really just say, hey, I've got a problem. Would you pray with me? Would you help me? And bringing that into the light, I think, is a huge first step. The second thing you need is you really need to be working with somebody who understands pornography and possibly sexual addiction. So there's a couple of great ministries. There's several of them, but a few that I'll mention. One is called Pure Desire. Another is called Be Broken. And a third is called the Samson Society. So these are all ministries that you can find on the internet and find a local group or an online group to begin just getting some like serious conversation around your pornography use and what it looks like to work through healing. And then I would say a third very important step for a lot of people is going to get some individual counseling because those ministries are going to help you kind of process through why you got hooked on porn and give you some steps on how you really seek healing and recovery. But porn is a drug. And so you learn to use that drug to deal with loss, loneliness, rejection. And so when you take the drug away, 
now you have to deal with that. You have to deal with the problems in your marriage. You have to deal with the wounds from your childhood. And so for a lot of people, they really don't find true freedom or recovery until they do some of that deeper counseling and really get at the root of what was pornography doing for me? What was it helping me escape from? Well, Julia, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being here. You host a podcast, Java with Julie. Does that come out weekly or a couple times a week? Usually it comes out every Monday. Right now we're going through a series where we have two episodes a week, but traditionally it's just on Mondays. And you're dealing with issues around sex, interviewing people in that podcast. Is that right? Or do you talk about other things in the context of marriage besides sex? We talk about intimacy. So we talk a lot about sex. We talk about sex and singleness and a lot of things we addressed, like healing from abuse and trauma, pornography, but also just how do you build intimate friendships? How does church culture need to change in order for us to have a better understanding of intimacy and sexuality? So all things around that. And if you go to Amazon and type in Julie Slattery, you'll find a host of books, 12 books. And I'm sure that you'd benefit from one of those. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.